Oh, as we start this new series, I'm excited and even trepidatious as this passage, this text, this book speaks so much to who God is and who we are in comparison to God. So as we are starting this series called In Jesus' Name, Amen, we chose to go through the book of John because John in particular writes a gospel account of Jesus, making known and clear that John and followers of Jesus believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. John is a book written by John. Shocking, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved is what he called himself. John was one of the sons of Zebedee, he and James, and he was also known, one of the titles that he had was the sons, him and his brother, the sons of thunder. And they lived up to that name because if you're familiar with the different gospel accounts in the book of Luke, John and James come to Jesus and say, can we rain down fire on these people that are trying to stop us from going to Jerusalem? John wrote the gospel account known as John. He also wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Bible quiz. What was the other book that he wrote? Revelation. Singular, not plural. And the author of this gospel, as I've said, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So why was he called that? Why did he call himself that? We've taught about this in the past, but really it's because that he understood that there was no one person, no entity that could actually handle his identity other than Christ Jesus. And so John got his identity from the fact that Christ loved him. Shouldn't that be where we all are at? He is also known as the Apostle of Love. And as he writes this gospel, there are four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. They are seen together. They are a synapsis of Jesus' earthly ministry as he lived, died, and rose again. But now we have John, who writes 90% of this gospel is not included in the three other gospels at all. And if we look at the book of John, this is an evangelistic book to point us to whom eternal life can be found in. So the purpose of this letter, this book, in the Bible, the reason that we're going through this, I'm actually going to allow John to describe it because towards the end of John, in John chapter 20, verse 31, it'll be on the screen, here's what he says. But these are written, this book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want to be honest with you this morning. The reason we're walking through this book isn't because it's easy to preach, because it's not. It's not because this book is popular, even though it is. But I think that there's no other book in the Bible in particular, no other letter that points us directly and squarely towards who Jesus is, and it's written by Jesus' closest friend who has been dominated by the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to be a church that makes much of Jesus, we got to know Jesus, don't you think? Not just know about Jesus, but actually know and experience and trust this Jesus. And what better person to tell us than Jesus' closest friend and disciple? So, you know, when I write a message for Church of the Valley, I read the text and I pray. 
Then I read the text again and again, and I pray again, and I look at commentaries of trusted teachers, and I look up synonyms for words, and I look up illustrations, and I pray, and then I meet with people, and I read the passage with those people, and I get their take on the text, and I pray, and I write down what I believe that God wants to say through this text using me to an audience that God understands far better than I ever will. That's my week. On top of meetings and more meetings and emails and exercise and family time, that is your pastor's week. And through all of that, this week in particular, as we were starting to work as preparing for this series and this sermon in particular, I've been wondering what it is that God wants to say through this book. So let me give you the things I believe we will do as we dive deeper and deeper in this book, verse by verse, for the next however long the Lord will allow us to do it. I believe he wants me to open it and explain what it means. I believe he wants us to read the text and not just read it on a Sunday morning, but actually read it during the week. Because as we finish this sermon today, the next sermon will be based on the text following this. So you can read ahead. It's okay. And I believe he wants us to open it, read it, explain it, what it means in the context in which it's written, and translate it as best that I can and other teachers can with the finite knowledge that we have, but through the prompting and illumination of the Holy Spirit. He wants me to implore and persuade you to actually put into action God's very words. And he wants to make sure that you and I know and follow the real Jesus rather than one you subjectively have imagined in your own mind based on feelings, opinions, and circumstances. This past week, I listened to a message of a, of a preacher. And I have to be honest, I was grieved. Now, I want to tread lightly as I share this because this isn't about how well we do it because, to be totally honest, in comparison to God's wisdom, we are so shallow. I am so shallow when I open the Word of God and preach it based on the interpretation I have, I can only really explain a fraction of God's glory each week. But I was grieved because my fear was that as this preacher was preaching the word of God, he wasn't describing Jesus of the Bible. He was describing one he had made up in his own subjective experience. And not only did it grieve me that he believed in what I think is a placebo version of Jesus, because I don't see the Jesus he preached about in the Bible but he was persuading others to do the same. I say this a lot, but I want to emphasize this point. So if you're taking notes, write this down. I'd rather have you reject the biblical Jesus than accept a placebo Jesus. I'd rather have you actually know who he is and say, no, I don't want him. I don't want his grace. I don't want his peace. I don't want his faithfulness. I don't want his love than accept a placebo Jesus. Because to be honest, you end up in the same predict predicament either way but you don't even realize it with the latter. So as we start to see who Jesus is from the scriptures, I want to share a point that I hope to touch on over and over through the sermon series. And when I describe it right now, it probably won't make sense, but by the, by my, my hope is by the end of the sermon that it will. We don't want to worship the words. We want to worship the word. So let me teach you who the word is. So please turn with me again, as Scott read, John chapter 1, as we start to walk through the book of John, which will possibly change and transform us more than we could ever realize if we would apply this word to our lives. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Capital W. In the beginning, before all things, before all time, at the start, the Word was there. And John starts off this letter paralleling Genesis chapter 1, where Moses writes, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you take these two verses together, one that starts the Old Testament and one that's considered one of the more popular New Testament Gospels. And not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but the Word, who we will see later on, is the Son, was there. And too often when we look at who God is, we either have or believe in modalism, I'm not going to spell that for you, but it is this doctrine that, that the persons of the Trinity Trinity actually only represent three different modes or aspects of divine revelation, but not distinct coexisting persons in the divine nature. All right, so for those of you that have no idea what I just said, it's where people think that the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is not actually triune, but God acts as the Father sometimes, and then acts as the Son sometimes, and then acts as the Holy Spirit sometimes, rather than he is one God and three persons all at the same time. Why is this important? The same reason that John is describing very clearly who Jesus is, because if you have all your faith in the world, if you have all the possible faith you could have in someone who isn't the real Jesus, then your faith is in vain. As we talked about last week, it's not about the amount of faith or the strength of your faith. It's in the object. And so I want to make sure, especially as we go through John 1, as John creates this prologue, if you will, in the first 18 verses, he starts with theology. He starts with who is God. Here is doctrine. This is who Jesus Christ is. Now, now let, me, let me tell you something, and I don't want to assume that this is every person in the room, but I want you to know what I believe. I trust these scriptures. I trust these scriptures, and I'm not going to explain all the reasons why today, but I will say this. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. That, I believe, is fact. Not because I hope that it's true, not because I've held his hand necessarily, but the reason that I believe that he physically rose from the dead is because there is not a good argument against it. And growing up without a faith, growing up without believing in Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't just the words that made me realize who he was. It was the evidence in history that persuaded my mind to look more into who this God is. So if Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, and it's not just something that I hope is true, it's something I'm convinced is true, because of that, these scriptures do the best job of describing why he rose from the dead better than any argument or any other writings or any other cult that wants to teach you what happened. And, and here's the thing. Because I trust the words and the word of God, I trust in the God of the word. Now, if you think about that statement, it may actually sound like circular reasoning, right? You go, wait, 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 you trust in the Bible, so you trust in God? I do. But that doesn't mean that I just believe that the Bible is true because the Bible says so. That's circular reasoning. But because I trust these scriptures are actually God's very words, I believe he also makes known who he is through them. So when we look at John and we hear John describing his best friend, if you will, Jesus, and explaining what Jesus has done, I believe that the Holy Spirit dominated him to do this. 
So if you're going to believe in and you're going to believe God, you got to make sure that the God you are believing in is the true God of the Word. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, capital W, and we'll talk about what that word means, existed at the beginning. The Word was in relationship with God at the beginning, and the Word was and has always been with and is God. So why call the word, word? The word that's used in Greek is logos. And in Greek, this word logos, it translates to logic. It also translates to truth. So you could read this another way. In the beginning was the truth, and the truth was with God, and the truth is God. It is the word logos that really defines that Jesus has always been He's always existed, but that he's also the Christ. Logos also means to communicate, means communication. And God, and I don't want us to miss this, especially as we go through the book of John, God communicates to us. He speaks to us. He makes himself, his ways, and his character known through what? Through the word. But not only through the words, but Jesus Christ, who we will see in verse 14, is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So it is the word that makes God known through the spoken word, through the written word, and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a reason that we always go back to this. There's a reason that we want to see what God has to say. And I know if you don't have a relationship with God, the idea that we look at a book as something as so important, it seems ridiculous. I love it when people say, well, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? And my response is, which ones? And they say, you know, the contradictions. And I say, where? And they go, you know, in the Bible. And I go, where? And they go, I don't know. I've never read it. (laughs) Verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. The word, logos, was with God, and he was, he now he's using the term he, was with God. He is Jesus, the word who dwelled among us. But why does John use such cryptic language, you may ask? There was a cult, and I'm going to call it a cult. There was a cult that was around at the same time that took a little bit of truth about Jesus, and they were known as Gnostics. And they were telling other things that, that anything that was made of matter or anything that had flesh was bad. So Jesus not only couldn't be God because he had flat flesh, but he was bad because he was made up of matter. So he must have been created, they would say. That was their reasoning and their argument. So John continues and makes very clear that this word, this he, this Jesus, is not just a man or one who was created, but he has always been. He is eternal, and from the beginning, he is. Verse 3. Through him... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Through him. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is making clear that that Gnostics and other readers of this letter know that this he is special. He's not just any he, but he is the one who created all things, and all things were made by and through him. Paul, the apostle, who writes the book of Ephesians, which we studied not too long ago, he writes many of the epistles in the New Testament. And one of the other books that he writes is Colossians. And this book in particular is also writing against this this other religion, this cult, if you will, that's telling people that Jesus is just a created being. 
And he says in verse 15, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. But then he goes on and it seems very parallel to John. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Are you getting the point that Jesus is pretty important? Paul also writes about this. He's correcting an incorrect conjecture, if you will, that Jesus was a created being rather than the exact representation of God Almighty. That all things were created by him, through him, and for him. That he holds all things together through his word and his will. The fact, think about this for a second, the fact that you're breathing right now, the fact that this world is spinning at the speed that it is from the distance from the sun that it is, the fact that you have blood going through your veins right now is because God, including his son, wills it. Wow, what a God. And yet so many of us blaspheme his name. Because they would rather believe that either everything came into existence from nothing (laughs) or that they actually have control over the way that this world works. It seems ridiculous when you think about it, right? That we have control, that we are sovereign, that we can control all things. And yet the Bible is making very clear Jesus is the only one. In fact, one of my favorite books of the Bible, because misery loves company, is the book of Job. If you guys are familiar with it, it looks like Job, right? J-O-B. And Job is, has a pretty great life, and then all of a sudden, Satan and God have an argument, and God allows Satan to take things from Job, and Job is going through the ringer. But one of my favorite things about the text is how God and Job communicate. And Job is complaining about the lot that he had been he had been dealt. He was complaining about the trials that he had gone through. Have any of us ever complained to God? Six of us and liars. Got it. And yet God and Job have this conversation in verse 38. I just want you, again, if I could have a superpower, it would be to read tone in Scripture. But I'm going to read this in the tone that I think God is using, okay? So in Job 38, Job has been complaining to God, and then God responds. (laughs) Verse 38, or sorry, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans without words of knowledge? (laughs) Who's this ignorant person who's trying to tell me how to do stuff? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Woo-wee! God calls out Job. What seems like a pretty intense tone to me, and yet I believe it was warranted because we, like Job, often question the creator without any understanding of what God is doing behind the scenes. So when we start to tell God how he ought to do something, we probably first need to realize, you and I, not sovereign. And all things were not made by us or through us or for us. 
So if God communicates logos, we must understand that his word supersedes our opinions, no matter how we feel. That's important enough for me to say it twice, because we have young people in here. If God communicates, we must understand that his word supersedes our opinions, no matter how we feel. I think it's an amazing trick that has been played on churches, especially in America, over the past many years to get us to believe in a God that isn't the God who God says that he is. Satan did this to Eve in the garden. And we believe the same lie today that maybe God's holding out on us, that maybe God isn't who he says that he is. And we think that we can know God through our subjective experiences and feelings and emotions rather than who he says that he is in the scriptures. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Last week, we talked a little bit about eternal life and how this is not about a time, but it's about a kind. And it is this God-man Jesus who is the life. He is the eternal life, a life that is abundant in the fact that it is a relationship with God. You don't get everything you want as a follower of Jesus, lest you become a spoiled brat, you get Jesus. That's the point. And it is this relationship with our God, our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer that is the abundant and eternal life. It is through this relationship with God that life is truly found, not through our own striving to get all that this world can offer us, but by being reconciled to God through repentance and relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and relationship with Jesus Christ. And as you and I are going to see in the next passage, there is this contrast between darkness and light, but we cannot miss the contrast between life and death. See, at one point, we were all dead. What? I'm just quoting what the Bible has to say. All of us were dead in our transgressions and sins. All of us lived among them at one time, but it was the word. It was the life. It was this light that was coming into our history. Who is God intervening? You want to know a simple way to look at the gospel? It's God intervened. That's the gospel, that you couldn't do it on your own. But God decided that you weren't going to go out like that. And he intervened. He not only tells us the way, he is the way. And one way as we start to look at this idea of God intervening, it is this term, God's intervention was the incarnation of the Son. Okay, some big words there, but God intervenes. But there is this incarnation. We'll talk more about this next week. But it was that the Son came and lived among us. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God became man. God took on flesh. So since the beginning, God has been intervening. And you and I were dead. We weren't just dying. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. But as Mike preached it many months ago, and I love this in Ephesians 2, but God. Oh, that gives me hope. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, I don't study in NIV. I like NIV. I memorize NIV. But I usually study in in New American Standard, NASB. And it says this in NASB. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Couldn't understand it. 
But see, this light, it overcomes, it overtakes, it dominates the darkness. In a science sense, darkness isn't actually anything other than the absence of light. But when light comes, it illuminates, doesn't it? It exposes, and it overcomes the darkness, and yet the world doesn't even realize that we're walking around with the lights turned off. But light overcomes, it dominates the darkness, and each of us, if we've been in this place, if we have a a relationship with the Lord, or even if we've heard the gospel from someone, we've been exposed to the light. We've been exposed to the glory and the brightness and the bigness of our God. And so light illuminates. The logos, the word, illuminates our need for a savior and a master because without him, we are dead. Without him, we are in darkness. I say this pretty often, but false teaching really is detrimental to our spiritual walk. And if it is detrimental to our spiritual life and our spiritual walk, there are times that we're going to have to do a checkup. There are going to be times that we're going to have to do a tune-up if you will. Because as we go through the book of John, especially at the beginning, John is going to explain in great detail who Jesus is. And ever since Jesus rose from the dead, people have been trying to perverse who he is. They've been trying to get you to follow a placebo God that isn't the true God of the Bible. And the hope is that if you would follow someone who's not the true son, not the true word, not Jesus of the Bible, then you would just spend all your time doing that, thinking that you're good. But if you're not going to follow Christ of the Bible, you might as well follow an object like a chair or Pokemon or a piano, okay? But I, wanna, I want us to actually wrestle with some heresy today. Because there's some heresy that some of us may believe. Heresy is very bad. It's detrimental. It is false teaching. And I want to protect you against this heresy first, and I'll have the negative and the positive, that Jesus was only a man rather than 100% God and 100% man. Any, any math people in here? That didn't really make sense, does it? And yet there are some things that are above our pay grade, and Jesus has always been 100% God. And so Jesus was not only a man, rather he was 100% God and 100% man. And so if you want to wrestle with this, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We're not going to turn there, but write that note down. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, and wrestle with this idea that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Second, Jesus was created. Jesus was created. We act like this, don't we? Oh, that he was a created being. Like, he's cool, he's my big brother, but we don't actually realize he's the sovereign. Jesus was not created. Jesus is the creator, and he has always been. He was not on the sidelines watching the Father create everything. He was involved in it. So look at Colossians 1.16, which we just studied. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which we're studying. Look at John 8, verse 58, where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. If he's not God, that's blasphemy. And then here's the third one, that God just acts in three different expressions. He acts as the Father, he acts as the Son, he acts as the Holy Spirit. It's like a magic trick. The problem with that's the Bible. Because he's one God in three persons at the same time, and yes, I don't get it fully. Oh, it's like an egg. No, it's not. It's like water. Nope. But look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. 
Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. And the sky opens up, and the Father says, This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased, as the Holy Spirit comes down, which looks like a dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all at the same time. So why do I bring this up? Because I don't want us to believe in a placebo God. What a waste of time. John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's about to get a little complicated up in here. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Here, John the disciple whom Jesus loved talks about John, but never does John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, use the term John and mean himself. In fact, almost every time he means John the Baptist, or if you don't like Baptist, John the Baptizer, okay? Or he also uses John, who's a father to Peter, but that's very rare. So usually when he speaks about John, he's talking about John the Baptist. When John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says the term John, it's about John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin and was a messenger who had came before Jesus, because he was born six months before, to prepare the way for the Lord and Jesus' ministry. It's interesting to me that John says that John the Baptist came so that all might believe. Might believe. It doesn't say will believe. And that's another heresy that even if you reject him, you don't want him. At the end of this life, you get him anyway. That would be God forcing himself on you, and I don't, homie, don't play that. But that opportunity had been presented. The invitations had been sent. And for many who would rather find their justification in their own works, in their own words, in the way that they build themselves up, or in a God they make up in their own mind, they are without realization that they truly have a need, and that need is for a Savior, and that Savior's name is Jesus. And it is this light the light of Jesus, the person and work of Christ that illuminates the fact that we are without excuse. You and I cannot work our way to God, but God worked his way to us by taking on flesh, living among us, being tempted like we are, and never did he do anything wrong, but he also did everything right. Wow. And that is why John the Baptist came to proclaim about the one who we'll see next week is one that he isn't even fit to untie the Messiah's sandals. So everything that we do as a church, everything that we do as a church is to exalt God and to point us to the finished work of Christ, life, death, resurrection, and to equip us in the unfinished work that God gave his church through the Holy Spirit to make disciples of all nations and generations. So don't get that skewed. We don't come here to make you comfortable. We'd have air conditioning. I'm just kidding. We do this because the Lord has actually asked those of us who have trusted him to make disciples, and we come here to celebrate what he's done and to equip you to go out those doors and be disciple makers. And I'm going to say that as much as I can because I don't want us to skew why we are the church. Verse 8. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Mike touched on this a few weeks ago. John, the author in particular, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, don't miss this, had been an elder in the church of Ephesus. So we talked about that when we were going through the book of Ephesians. 
Timothy was the young pastor. Paul planted the church. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was one of the founding elders. Could you t- that's a staff right there. But in that time, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, Jesus' closest ally and friend, had started to be exalted above Jesus because he was physically there and people could see him and they knew that he hung out with Jesus. And the author, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, also knew that people were exalting John the Baptist, that he had been raised up above Jesus because of his stature and his devotion to his calling and mission. You need to know, if you're, if you're an attender, if you're a member, or you're just visiting, you need to know that we serve, and we give, and we preach, and we disciple, and we lead worship, and we create spaces for people to engage with, and as God's church, not to raise awareness of our goodness, but to exalt how great, or to exalt how great our church is. But we do all of it to exalt Jesus Christ. And I think there's this misconception with those that are without the Holy Spirit, those that are not in relationship with Christ. Sometimes we think that those of us who serve in the church or have a role or have a title or a job do it because we then gain more love. We gain more grace or credit from God. And that is in direct contradiction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is not about you or me. It's about him. And the glory of God illuminated through the truth and grace in the person of Jesus. And so we don't do what we do to get kudos from man. In fact, I'm not preaching like I want you to come back, to be totally honest. I just want to tell you the truth. So just know that we're not going to brag on ourselves. We have some amazing people in this church. But you're not going to hear us just talk about how great we are. We're going to point it back to Christ. In fact, a great way to expose yourself as someone who is less spiritually mature or possibly even spiritually dead is based on how much you talk about yourself. How much do you justify yourself by what you do or what you've done in the past? We cannot be a church that makes it about creation. We cannot be a church that makes it about man or woman because, as we see in this text, we're not the light. We come as witnesses to the light, and the light is Jesus Christ. So he, John, was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light, but came to testify to what he knew to be true about the light. John's purpose was to be a reflection of God's glory, to be a reflector of this light to a dark world that is in more need of truth and grace and love today than I think we've ever realized. The world since the fall has been broken. Since the fall, it has been dark. But because of social media... Because of news and information being given to us almost too much, the darkness is illuminated even more today than ever. And even though it feels that we've never been in a darker period in time, I'm here to tell you that the light that John came to testify about is still burning bright, church. It is still illuminating the sinful nature that many refuse to own up to that we actually have. And it's allowing the contrast of the light to expose our need for a Savior and Lord who will not only save us, but he will lead us and he will sanctify us as we do what he says. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
the true light, a pure light, was coming into the world. Spoiler alert, you ready? It's not about a government official or a celebrity. You hear me? The true light was not a government official. We do not put our hope in Congress. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. So as we worship today and meditate on these truths that we've walked through this morning, my hope is that this book especially the book of John as we read it, will not only illuminate our need for Jesus, even if we know him, but our love and devotion to the real Jesus, not a counterfeit created Jesus who you and I can control. So I have this question for you. Who do you worship? Who do you worship? If you meet with people after hearing this sermon, if you spend time wrestling with the questions on the back of the bulletin, I would encourage you to write down this question and be as honest as you can. Who do you worship? We don't want to just worship the words and tell everyone all the verses that we know, but we want to worship the word, the logos, the truth, Jesus Christ, God with skin. God personified. We worship the God who actually communicates with us, who intervened for us, and who made a way so you could know him through his spoken and written perfect word. But more on that next week. So this is where we have to be continued in the Back to the Future writing, okay? Worship team, would you come on up? And as they come up, I want to tell, there's a story that's told about a couple who took their son, who was 11, and their daughter, who was 7, to Carlsbad Caverns. As always, when the tour reached the deepest point in the cavern, the guide turned off all the lights to dramatize how completely dark and silent it is below the Earth's surface. The little daughter, who was 7, suddenly enveloped in utter darkness, was frightened and began to cry. Immediately, as her brother heard her voice, her brother said to her, Don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn on the lights. In a real sense, church, that's part of the gospel. The light is available even when darkness seems overwhelming. So we're going to spend some time in musical worship. We're going to spend some time in giving of our offering. And I want to encourage you with the fact that we don't do this because God has a mortgage on heaven. We do this because this is an act of worship to give of our offering. It is an act of worship to sing praises to our God. And so if you come into this place and you don't have a relationship with the Lord, I would encourage you to submit to him. That you would look at the word of God. You would look at the logos. You would look at Jesus who is the word. And you would say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And I repent. I change direction. I want to follow you because you did for me what I could not do for myself. And so in front of you, there should be some communication cards. If you're new here or maybe you've been here a while, but you want to communicate with the church, here's what I would encourage you to do. Maybe today is the day that you want to trust Jesus. Maybe you are willing to just say, Lord, not me, but you. I'm willing to follow you because you lived the perfect life. You died the death I deserve to die. You physically rose from the dead, and I want to be adopted into the kingdom of God. It's not about a prayer. It's not about walking down an aisle. It's about you being willing to submit right where you are. And so if that's you today, 
I'd encourage you to, to write that on a card and drop it in the offering as we receive it, as people walk up to drop off their offerings. Maybe today you've been challenged with the fact that, yes, you follow Jesus, but you've never actually done what he said when it came to baptism. Maybe, just maybe, you want to be baptized. You want to show outwardly what you believe inwardly already. Why don't you write on the card, I'd like to know more about baptism and let us know, and we'll contact you. But I'm going to pray for us, and I hope that this would be a time that we, with our whole hearts, would say, Lord, you are deserving of praise, and you are worthy. God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the opportunity that we've had to worship you through your word. I pray as we sing songs of praise to you and we give of our offering that you would take these tithes and offerings and you would multiply your kingdom with disciples of Jesus Christ all over the world. Would you give the leaders of this church the wisdom to trust you and do the things that your will is calling us to do as we steward these gifts? God, we thank you that you are the great redeemer and you came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So may you get all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name.